Good evening, everyone. You are the few, the brave, the people whose pipes haven't frozen that you know of. Welcome to evening worship, and I want to say thank you very much to Pastor Foltz, who isn't here, but also to the elders and to you as a whole congregation for the invitation to be here. It really is, really is an honor, and it's a pleasure. And it's been great talking to people over uh, the last couple days, getting to know some new friends and uh, renewing acquaintance with some old friends. So uh, tonight we are going to be looking at the Gospel of Mark. So I'd ask you to turn there with me if you can to Mark chapter 14. And in a moment I'm going to be reading verses 3 through 9. And I will give you a second to get there. I didn't do that this morning and I should have. Sorry about that. I forgot that I was cheating by already having a ribbon in this place. Mark chapter 14. We're going to be looking at verses 3 through 9. Hear God's word. And while he, that is Jesus, was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want to, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Uh, Tonight, uh, I I asked uh, Pastor Jerry uh, how long to preach, and he said about the same as the morning, and I said, I'm not sure I can do that. So this may be a little shorter than you're used to, but I'll I'll try to make it worth your while, whether it's long or short. Uh, We're looking at a story that is recounted in all four of the Gospels, and it comes, it's placed especially in the Gospel of Mark at a very crucial Time. This takes place just a few days before Jesus' arrest and his crucifixion. And it takes place in Bethany at the house of someone named Simon, or Simon the leper. Uh, it takes place a short time until he's going to the cross. Jesus knows this, but it seems like no matter how many times he tells his disciples that it's coming, it can't get through their heads. And the reason for that, I think, is pretty simple. This is not what they expect of the Messiah. When, they, when they, the Messiah is going to come, according to everything they've been trained and taught to believe, the Messiah is going to come like David riding to war. He's going to come uh, a supernatural warrior sent by God to destroy the Romans, to purify Israel, to get rid of all of the, the people who don't truly believe, who don't keep God's law, who cooperate with the enemies of God's people, and to establish the kingdom of God on earth with a sword. And no matter how many times Jesus speaks of his own death and burial, it seems to go in one ear and out the other. There's a short time left until the cross, 
And here at this party, uh, this dinner party that's, that's being held in Jesus' honor, uh, among friends and maybe a few people who aren't as close friends, uh, a woman comes in and gives him an extraordinary gift, an extraordinarily expensive gift. And she does this in such a way that she crosses the threshold of impropriety. Other uh, gospel writers tell us she anointed not only his head, but also his feet. And she wiped his feet with her hair. This is crossing a line, certainly in any traditional uh, society. In fact, I think most of us would be a little shocked if it happened at this party we were at. And she gives a gift. It's not just the way she gives it that's um, extravagant and a little off-putting. It's the gift itself. The gift, we're told, was worth something like 300 denarii. A denarii was worth a day's, was a typical day's wages for a worker at that time. So what you're looking at is basically a year's wages. Think about, say, a forty or $50,000 <clears> jar of ointment. Excuse me. There's a reason there's water in here. Think about a fifty or uh, $40,000 jar of ointment that this woman is breaking open and pouring out on Jesus, not giving him a little dab or a little spritz like you might get in Macy's, but the whole thing, it's gone. There's no coming back from this. It's made of spikenard, which would have been imported from India or Nepal along the ancient spice, uh, spice road. And it lets out an absolutely overwhelming and beautiful and powerful smell. Uh, John tells us that um, the smell of it filled the room, and I completely believe it. A few years ago, I got, got my hands on a little sample of spikenard, and it is really a beautiful smell, and it lasts as well. So if you're looking for a perfume tip, there you go. She pours out this gift on Jesus' head and on his feet, and the reaction in the room is not positive. Those who are looking on are critical at best and maybe shocked, and they begin to criticize her use of her resources. This is probably something like her life savings, unless she's a very rich woman, and we know from other passages of scriptures that this was most likely Mary Magdalene, not a very rich woman. This represents an extraordinary treasure that she somehow got her hands on, and to use this, some of those watching say, was a waste of money. These things could have been, uh, this could have been sold and the proceeds given to the poor. I said before that all four Gospels record this incident, and they give us some different details. Mark and Matthew have almost identical accounts. Uh, Luke has a very different account with a lot more information and a lot more speech by Jesus in it. And John gives us some details that really show, once again, that John was there. John was there in the room when it happened. Uh, Luke focuses on the scandal of the giver. We read that this is a woman with a reputation who's come in and, and done this kind of shocking thing to Jesus, wiping his feet with her hair, weeping on him, as well as pouring out this ointment. Um, the man whose house it is, Simon the leper, uh, says to himself in his heart, we read, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. It would have been bad enough, he thinks, for a saint to come in and do this to Jesus. But this is a sinner. Does he know 
what this is going to look like. And Jesus goes on, and, and after telling a little parable, he teaches Simon that the one who has been forgiven much loves much. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. John in chapter 12 uh, gives us more details. For one thing, John does something that John likes to do. Remember, the, the Gospel of John is most likely written way after the other three are written, probably almost at the end of the first century, when all of the other apostles, as far as we can tell, and all of the other Gospel writers are probably dead and gone. And John does something that most of the Gospels don't do, which is all, over and over again, he names names. And so we find out only in John's gospel that the woman who was pouring out ointment on Jesus' feet was Mary Magdalene. And we find out only in John's gospel that the person criticizing this outpouring of love was Judas. And John adds the detail that Judas wasn't worried about the poor. He was worried about the money because he held the money bag and he liked to dip his hand into it and take what he liked. So whatever criticism is going on in the room, probably it was Judas who started it. Mark and Matthew give us the simplest account. And I want to give you a few points of it, just go over what's, what we've just read, basically. But also then highlight one thing that Mark has that maybe nobody else has. Mark and Matthew, of course, highlight the extravagance of the gift. They tell us that Jesus says that she's done this in preparation for his burial, which is very close. He talks about the beauty or the fineness of the deed. He uses this great Greek word, kalos. It's good. It's beautiful. It's fine. Uh, and, and off the highway near where I used to live, there was an old social club uh, that had Greek letters across it that said ton kalon. And it was, the, it was known as locally as the TK Club, and it was a club for do-gooders, people who wanted to do good or beautiful things. He highlights the imprudence of the gift, that this was really an incredible thing for her to do and maybe not very wise from a financial perspective. But then he, they also give us the extraordinary response of Jesus in verses 6 and following. She has done a beautiful thing to me. You always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial, and truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Let me pause and just point out that when the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John, were writing their accounts, they remembered that Jesus said this, and they took this as an order. And every one of them included in their Gospels this event. Mark alone includes Jesus saying something very simple, but something I want to kind of latch onto and take it somewhere. In verse 8, she sa uh, Jesus says, She has done what she could. Or I'll rephrase it very slightly. What she could do, she did. What she could do, she did. And there's kind of two parts of that. What she could do, she did. She had something she could do, and she did it. What was in her power to do, she did. But the other part is this. What she could do, she did. Something a little bit different than anybody else could possibly have done. 
probably there weren't a lot of other women with these extremely expensive jars of perfume in the neighborhood. But what she could do, she did. And here's my challenge. Here's where I want to take this. Let me ask you whether you're sort of in the middle of your life and you're trying to figure out what's next, or maybe you're at the beginning of your life and you're trying to figure out what to do with the years that are ahead of you, what is the finest thing you can do for the Lord? A couple of years ago, I had a pastoral intern uh, who uh, was an excellent young man, and one of the things that he was really good at was asking questions. And he drew things out of me that made me feel like I was the intern and he was the pastor and he was doing some counseling. One of the things he asked me that made me really think about this question and made me think about this passage in a new light was, why did you become a pastor? And I've heard people answer that by saying, quoting Charles Spurgeon, who said something like, You should only do this if it's the only thing you can do. You just feel so compelled to do it that you're miserable doing anything else. And that never really stuck with me because I like doing all kinds of other things. And there are all kinds of other things that are sometimes a lot more fun than being a pastor, to be honest. But I did stop and think about it in answer to his question, and I thought it was the finest thing that I could do. It was the best thing that I could put my mind and my hands to. What is the finest thing you can do for the Lord? And we are always given a choice of what to do. Now that's a strange thing for a Calvinist pastor to say, but as Calvin understood the sovereignty of God, it's not strange at all. God gives us all kinds of choices of what to do. It's always in our hand to take the next step in one direction or another in a good direction, a bad direction, or maybe even a better direction. Every moment that's ahead of us, whether it's a split second, or whether it's a year, or whether it's a lifetime, you can look at, I'll put it this way for you STEM people, as a multivariate problem. Life and every moment is a multivariate problem. The question is, what variable will you solve for? Will you solve for the one that makes the most sense financially? Will you solve for the one that makes your family the happiest? Will you solve for the one that's the easiest? Or maybe will you solve for the one that is the finest thing that you can do? Now, I think this plays out. And by the way, this isn't a sermon about how people should become pastors. But it's a challenge to each of you individually. What is the best thing that you can do? Now, this plays out in big picture decisions. What will I do with my life? Life questions, career, education. Uh, Right now, there's a very uh, popular school of ethics. It's popular in Silicon Valley, I think, uh, built around the idea that the best thing that a smart person can do is earn an extremely large amount of money and give it away to good causes. And I found that many Christians likewise choose a career route that is lucrative, that's not all that risky, that maybe doesn't demand all that much creativity out of them, but they look at it and they go, you know, this is going to do a lot for me, and I can do a lot for the kingdom in terms of donating. And some people are definitely called to be high earners and very generous givers. 
And my church sure has been blessed through people like that. And I love to see that. Because as I was describing a friend to other friends, God keeps shoveling the money in, and he keeps shoveling the money out, and he is not ruled by his money. That's a beautiful thing. But my question, especially to those facing a career choice, is, again, what is the finest and most beautiful thing you can do with the work itself, with the 80,000 or so hours of working life that are at least theoretically ahead of you? How about the choice between marriage and celibacy? And I know a few people winced inside at the word celibacy, but it is something that the Bible talks about as a laudable thing. Paul says, I wish all were as I am. He works and lives his life in obedience to the Lord, and he is freer to do so because he is not raising and caring for a family at the same time. How about the choice? Here's, this, this is something I was talking about a moment ago. How about the choice of whether to become a pastor or a missionary? A number of years ago when I was in seminary, uh, one of the, the coolest assignments that I didn't think would be a cool assignment at all uh, was in our Reformed Presbyterian history class, everybody had to pick a decade of the Reformed Presbyterian, his, uh, the Reformed Presbyterian Church and just read everything they could and write a paper on it. And one of the things that jumped out at me, I think I did my paper in the 19-teens, one of the things that jumped out at me was that the RP Church at that time sent its best and its brightest into the mission field. It was impressive. They sent a lot of people, especially for a church that was no bigger than we are now and maybe even smaller. They sent people who poured their lives out and often lost them to Syria, to China, later on to Japan, to the Apache, uh, Oklahoma work, reaching Comanches. How about the choice between doing what is risky or doing what is safe? How about your choice of spouse? When you look around, those of you who seek to be married, when you look around, you should ask, who will partner with me to live the finest life together that we can as an offering to the Lord? You really do have to figure out what you're looking for in a husband or a wife. And that might be a good place to start. Pouring yourself into other people, whether it's a husband or a wife or children, is risky. It's a bit crazy because you are pouring, you are putting all your eggs in one basket and hoping that nothing happens to that basket. That is a beautiful thing to do. How about small daily decisions? Not thinking now about what am I going to do with the next 40 years of my career or even the next 10 years of my career, but what am I going to do today? And some of us wake up in the morning wondering what we're going to do today because maybe we don't have very many responsibilities or maybe we're in really rough shape and just facing the day is a challenge. We often think circumstances of life are the drama that's going on in our lives. We think our health is the big drama our state of mind, maybe our mental health is the big drama, our money situation is the big drama, the age and physical health that we're dealing with, our family situation, whether our marriages are going well or they're difficult, how our children are doing, our job, we think these are the big drama. God is not interested in those as the drama. 
The drama that he's interested in is how we, we will respond to those circumstances. How will we act in the face of things being really hard? How will we act when we feel anxious or we feel depressed? How will we act when someone runs us down or attacks us in some way? The real drama, that's the thing that the angels are watching and wondering what we'll do. And so the question then, when you're getting up in the morning and asking yourself, I don't know what I'm going to do today or how I'm going to get through it. What is the tiny but beautiful thing that I will do today in my particular circumstances? Artists know that you have to run after what is most kalos, what is most fine, what is most beautiful, what is most good. And artists also know that a lot of people, maybe most people, maybe everybody but you won't get it. They'll look at what you're doing and they'll go, that is just weird. That is a waste of time. It will puzzle or annoy or scandalize someone. Someone may try to stop you. Certainly what happened to Mary Magdalene here, pouring out this ointment on Jesus' head and feet. The medieval theologian Thomas Aquinas came from a noble family in Italy. And when he determined to become a monk and spend his life in prayer and in study, his brothers locked him in a tower with a woman of ill repute, hoping that that would change his mind and head him off from this career. They wanted him for the family business and not to go off and waste his life in studying the word of God and seeking to understand the mysteries of the universe. What you run after, if you seek to do something good, something beautiful, will not be exactly anyone else's thing. If you choose to get married, your spouse will be different in good and bad ways that are different from anybody else's spouse. If you choose to become a pastor, your church and your experience as a pastor is going to be different from anybody else's experience. Yeah, there's going to be overlap, but what God has called you to will not be exactly what he's called anyone else to. It will not be the wisest thing. It will not be the most prudent thing. It will not make you as secure, as rich, as respected as you could be. It will not be the safest thing but it will be what glorifies God. You realize that if there is no God, we are all wasting our time here. That worship is an epic waste of time. But if there is a God, then this is the very best thing that you can do with your time. And living your life as a conscious act of worship before God is the very best thing you can do. Now, let me point out two more things. First of all, what you do for the Lord dies with him. Think about what Jesus says here. This incredible outpouring of, of beauty, this incredible outpouring of love, this extravagant gift that, that this woman has broken open and poured out on him. He says, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. This is going to die with me. John tells us that the smell filled the room. This is another one of those great John details because John was in the room. 
How long did the smell of spikenard stay in the air? How long did it continue to be in the room when the party was over and people walked in? Was it weeks? Was it years? It wasn't forever. How long did the smell stay on Jesus? This was the Wednesday, as far as I can tell from Mark, of the Passion Week, most likely, and the smell would still be on Jesus when he was buried, in addition to the incredible uh, amount of spices that were brought and added to his body by Joseph of Arimathea and others. The gift that the woman so extravagantly poured on Jesus would go to the grave with him. And if you are going to do anything beautiful for the Lord, you must be prepared for that to die too. You will do the magnificent thing, and no one will clap or cheer. You will do the beautiful thing, and people will shrug and walk past. You will do the hard thing, and you will get just enough help to keep going, but only just enough help. But going along with that, what you do will also rise with the Lord. This life is not a transaction. We've been given an infinite gift of life through Christ that we do not earn and we cannot repay. But a life that is lived for the Lord is no vain gesture. I want you to think about all the places in Scripture where someone appeals to God or appeals to Christ, remember me. When Nehemiah writes in his memoir, remember me, O my God, for good. When the insurgent on the cross rebukes the other one, then says, Jesus, remember me when, I, when you come into your kingdom. When Isaiah complains and then remembers that my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. When Stephen, as the stones hit him, calls out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. These are not wishes. These are not, I hope it works out. These are men praying that their life's work or their deaths or a splinter of true faith glorify God before it's too late. They will be gathered into the grave with the Son of God and rise again in power at the right time. So how long does the good smell of that perfume stay? Well, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. And I'm going to go out on a limb, and it's going to be, I think, a long time before we can check on this, but say that what she has done is going to continue to be talked about after this world is, gone, is done and gone as well. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, that we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, a fragrance from life to life. The gospel writers followed the orders that Jesus had given them. All four recount this moment. So my question is, what will you do next? Do the most beautiful thing you can think to do, pouring out your best on the head and feet of Jesus and be sure that you too will be remembered. Let's pray about that. Heavenly Father, we are before you at all kinds of different places in our lives. 
Some of us in this room are extremely young, so young that we don't understand what's at all what's going on in the sermon. Some of us are at the beginning of college or our careers. Some of us are up there in years and trying to think about how best to use our old age. And a lot of us are somewhere in the middle trying to figure out what is the best thing that we can do with the time that you've given us that's left. Heavenly Father, we know that we can never earn or repay the salvation that you've given us in Christ. We know that anything that we pour out on you is an offering on top of the true atonement, on top of the one true offering that can bring us to God. But I pray that you would give us the discernment, the wisdom, the vision to see what you're calling us to, and that you would give us the courage to overcome our own fears, our own reluctance to give up some of the good things in this world, and sometimes the criticism and the resistance that comes from people around us who may want good things for us, but don't want the best thing for you and for your glory. And Lord, give us the courage of Mary Magdalene to do the finest thing that we can. In Jesus' name we pray, the risen Jesus. Amen.